G'day, everyone. Welcome back to part two, Ideas Matter, Nietzsche, Birth of Tragedy. Yeah, we we actually recorded like an hour, an hour and 20 minutes yesterday. And then when we stopped recording, uh, only 45 minutes were captured. So we're back today, the very next day to finish off the podcast. Uh, but hopefully, as a result, this ending feels much more polished and refined for you guys. Yeah, we're back. We're refreshed. We're pumped. In the words of a rapper who I can't remember who it is, back at it like a crack addict. Uh, so let's get back into it. So where we left off last time, uh, we were talking about, uh, just to recap, the Apollonian and the Dionysian impulses in art, and then how the Socratic impulse came along, uh, partly from Euripides in the arts and Socrates when it comes to intellectual life, and destroyed that sort of artistic impulse uh, that was so productive to Greek culture. And we touched on this quite a bit, the idea of myth, uh, myth's role in culture, myth's role in tragedy, in the Apollonian and Dionysian, and how the Socratic, uh, Socratic impulse ends up destroying myth because it's irrational, right? Uh, the Socratic impulse focuses on what's rational and supposes that what's rational can be known, what's rational is good, what's rational is true. Uh, those things are all equal uh, in this mindset. Uh, so there's no real room for myth in that sort of uh, disposition. But Nietzsche finds myth to be something that's needed both for art uh, and for human life in general. And for religion, I think, if I remember correctly. Religion as well and culture generally. So not both, but four things. Um, so I would start out here with a quote on myth from Nietzsche. Uh, for the myth wishes to be seen as a unique example of a universality and truth that gazes into infinity. Truly Dionysiac music is just such a general mirror of the universal will. Every concrete event reflected in this mirror is immediately broadened out for our emotions into the illustration of an eternal truth. That is in a nutshell, is where Nietzsche sees the value of myth, right? With myth, it gives you a mirror, a mirror of some grand event, some grand tragedy that allows you to make sense of your own life um, and allows you to sort of orient yourself through your own striving and sufferings and whatnot. And getting rid of this takes kind of rips the soul out of a culture, right? Uh Part of myth is in its irrationality, right? There are miracles, there are gods, there are these dramatic, unreal events. But it's because of those that myth gains its massive kind of like thematic importance in people's lives, right? It shows struggles, uh, it shows human impulses, and it shows the kind of grand, I don't know, grand themes of the universe, in a way that's so magnified that it's at like 100 times zoom and you're able to relate that intensity of that experience to yourself. Uh, and it's not just on the level of the individual, right? It All cultures need it, right? It unifies a culture if you have a myth, a solid foundation of myth that all people in a particular culture share, right? It provides a shared basis. And this is something that's quite common as well in uh, the history of political philosophy, though the importance of having some sort of founding myth or 
as some political philosophers like Plato and Burke call it, uh, you mentioned this yesterday, I can't remember. The noble, the noble lie. Yeah, the idea of a noble lie. Um, but I think calling it noble lie is a sort of, at least in the translation of the Republic I read, the translator mentions, it's not so much that it's a lie, it's, it's, it's more accurate to uh, translate that as myth, right? Mm. Um, some shared sort of grand cultural basis to unify people. We live in a democracy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, everybody has rights and freedoms. Yeah. Like where, like if I, like, you, you know, you take a body uh, at a morgue and like you open it up, like where am I going to find their rights and freedoms? <laughs> yeah. But I think, I think the point that Nietzsche is making, I mean, to, to take like the democracy example, like, yeah, we do live in a democracy, but we also like that democracy is completely flawed and imperfect. Mm. And, you know, if you want to be really cynical about it, AKA Chomsky, we don't live in a democracy, mm. but we all sort of just like tell ourselves that we do because that's has a sort of social cohesive effect. Yeah. But it, at the same time, like it, it's kind of this cognitive dissonance that's going on where we know it's not actually true, but it's also tr- still true on the level of what well, we all believe we live in a democracy and we all act according to that belief. And at the same time, it's like an, ide- an ideal that we strive towards. Mm-hmm. It's not a literal concrete truth. It's kind of this like, yeah, this sort of Burkean noble lie that sort of just enables society to function. Right, yeah. And Nietzsche sees that as being necessary, yeah. right? You, you can't just completely base a society off like cold rationality because at that point there's going to be nothing that really unifies all people within a particular framework right yeah um but also he has a interesting uh idea that the state's most powerful unwritten law is its mythical foundation right so not only is it important but it's the most important thing on the level of just some sort of grand unifying impulse there right it is the grand myth of a particular society or culture is the thing that draws the people together. Yeah. Um, and much of our present dilemma, uh, as Nietzsche saw it in his time, and I think, as, as you alluded to, we can very sensibly extend it to a, uh, our current day, is that we have abandoned myth to the level, uh, at, at the sort of like purity and intensity at which ancient peoples had it. Right, because we have like, yeah, there's that Chomskyan idea. I've, I've also heard it from um, right-wing figures as well, like Curtis Yarvin, that we tell ourselves we live in a democracy, but as a matter of fact, it's just an oligarchy. Mm. Um, but, you know, we, we have this cultural myth that you know, everybody wants to believe in the ideal uh, of living in a democracy, but there's no real... there. There's no kind of grand narratives there's no you know people uh in this sort of mythic framework from whom you can look at and relate to your own life right it's this is sort of like an like an abstract myth like yeah yeah like, no that's a that's a fair point as, as like as odd as this sounds it's, it's like a rational myth that's true yeah conceptual myth and not not a myth in terms of the way that um nature would recognize and admire 
Yeah, and hearkening back to the Raymond Goyce lectures that I was talking about yesterday, um, Goyce says that like the, the main thing that Nietzsche is concerned about in his era is nihilism. He sees nihilism as being on the rise, um, which again is, is interesting because a lot of people sort of misconstrue Nietzsche as himself being a nihilist, but no, like that's what he was concerned about. He was concerned with the collapse in meaning. Um, and, you know, everyone will be familiar with the God is dead quote. But yeah, I guess this sort of in its this is in its embryonic stage in the birth of tragedy where he's talking about the decline of myth and the burgeoning excessive faith in rationality, which he sees as going to have very harmful consequences. Yeah. And the kind of man, uh, the kind of person, the human being who most embodies this abandonment of myth and sort of worship, uh, valorization of rationality, is what he terms to be theoretical man. So could you take us through uh, what theoretical man is, what, what kind yeah. of person they are? Theoretical man. Um, so Nietzsche says that he sees actually the birth of science as residing in Socrates, which seems like an extreme statement, but I want to read this quote um, from Jeremy Waldron, who's a New Zealand philosopher and legal theorist. Um, and he's got this great essay about the theoretical foundations of liberalism. And he's talking here about liberalism and the Enlightenment. And so to quote, the Enlightenment was characterized by a burgeoning confidence in the human ability to make sense of the world, to grasp its regularities and fundamental principles, to predict its future and to manipulate its powers for the benefit of mankind. And I think that pretty well articulates what Nietzsche is driving at here when he talks about Socrates being the birth of science and theoretical man. It's this mindset which thinks that human reason can penetrate the depths of reality, not only understand it, but through that understanding, manipulate it for the benefit of us. Yeah, and I, I got a good quote that uh, encapsulates that well from the text uh, on Theoretical Man by Nietzsche. Quote, The unshakable belief that rational thought, guided by causality, can penetrate to the depths of being and that it is capable not only of knowing but even of correcting being. Yeah, uh, and, and I think that's this is an exquisite critique of the whole Enlightenment project that is one, at least historically speaking, is more associated with the right wing uh, because you might say that like socialism and Marxism, their critique of the Enlightenment project is that it ignores the economic reality that puts these ideals out of touch for most people. So it's actually trying to take Enlightenment liberalism more seriously than it takes itself, whereas the conservative critique was, well, actually this belief that a more rational politics is this kind of social panacea and it's going to solve all our problems. That's highly mistaken uh, because rationality is just one facet of human existence and it's not even the largest facet of human existence. And if you ignore all the other things and if you ignore the human need for things that are irrational or indeed even irrational, if you dismiss those things as being merely mythic, not true, traditional and oppressive, based on, on nothing other than superstition, well, that's going to have really disastrous consequences in the, in, in the long run. And, and that, that's a criticism that, that Nietzsche is making. 
uh, and he thinks that we're coming to, well, mind you, he's writing in the 1870s, but he thinks that we're coming to the limit of this faith in science to understand and improve the world. And once we hit that limit, he's sort of suggesting that there's going to be a sort of a backlash to it. Hmm. Yeah, like he says that, well, I'm paraphrasing him here, but like it'll, it'll just get science and rationality will get to a point where it just sort of bites itself in the tail, right? Yeah. It's like the dog chasing its tail and then it finally gets it and now what? You just got a tail in your mouth. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's sort of, you can sort of draw an historical parallel with like, um, and again, I'm borrowing here from Raymond Coyce, <laughs> but it's just great, like great lecture series. But he talks about nature as existing in this kind of historical limbo. Prior to 1848, the go was German idealism and the belief that like history had a purpose and it was going to culminate in this democratic liberal revolution. And then you have these revolutions of 1848 and by and large, they're brutally suppressed by the feudal aristocracy or the monarchs. And so philosophers and people who listened to them went, well, clearly this theory of history is not working out very well. And so philosophy for, for about 50 years had a very low standing, and that's the era in which Nietzsche is writing. And you can make a similar parallel with uh, liberalism and enlightenment politics again in the early 20th century because there's this belief that if we just have a more rational society, which always equates with a more democratic liberal society, we will solve political problems. And then, of course, you have the rise of fascism and Nazi Germany and that sort of belief, this grand uh, illusion, shatters and in response you get the rise of existentialism because they go, well, we thought that we had this panacea to politics and meaning and social life. Clearly it didn't work out. It had disastrous consequences. What now? It's not a coincidence that then you have the rise of existentialism in Camus and Sartre. But this is why Nietzsche is regarded as a proto-existentialist because he seems to be predicting this in a sense. He seems to say, well, if you place all your faith on reason, you're going to be disappointed when reason doesn't give you what Socrates would have predicted, which is virtue and happiness and morality. Reason can just as easily give you Auschwitz. Yeah, I, I got a good quote here from the text that sort of uh, connects to that. It manifests the same features that I have inferred from the spirit of the non-Dionysiac. It opposes Dionysiac wisdom and art. It seeks to destroy the myth, replaces metaphysical consolation with an earthly consonance, a deus ex machina of its own. Deus ex machina meaning a god in the machine. It's like a... We, we talked about this in the last episode. Also um, the, the name of a very good film. Yeah, and also a good game series, Deus Ex. Um, the god of machines and crucibles... The powers of the spirits of nature acknowledged and employed in the services of the higher egoism. It believes in the rectification of the world through knowledge and in a life guided by science. And it can also truly confine the individual within a limited circle of soluble problems from which he can cheerfully say to life, I want you, you are worth knowing. I want you, you are worth knowing. I love that quote. Yeah. So he, it's, it's not just that... Um, rationality is bad because it leads to um, bad ends that ignore human life um, and it's kind of spins out of control. But he sees its optimism as being misguiding as well, right? Rationality is optimistic because 
you know, remember that Socratic, um, the Socratic framework where truth, knowledge, beauty, justice, goodness, happiness are all interconnected, right? Mm. All those notions overlap with one another. So there's an optimism about life through rationality. You can know more about life and the universe and through that you can become happier. But he, Nietzsche sees that as being, well, it, it simply just doesn't prepare you for life. You're not well equipped to deal with life if you're sort of hiding yourself behind this optimism. But you can. he, he later repudiates this. Um, he, he still wouldn't call him an optimist, but he's not an outright pessimist either. Yeah, he's neither a pessimist nor a nihilist. Um, but I think it's worth I think it's worth touching on uh, how Nietzsche sees this excessive zeal in rationality manifesting in art, and why he thinks that is not art, uh, and also why he strongly dislikes critics critics of art. Um, and I think I think this was cut out from yesterday, but I, I was talking about how a lot of art today, it, the aesthetic and the creative impulse is secondary to its desire to have some sort of cutting-edge social commentary, right? Um, and, and this for Nietzsche is, is really problematic because that's not the purpose of art. The purpose of art is to give effect and to show us and let us feel and partake in the tragic underlying nature of reality. It's not to construct this rational critique which we it's not moralistic it shouldn't be moralistic um and 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 Nietzsche sees a lot of modern art as being too moralistic and I think if you thought that in the 1870s (laughs) what would he say today yeah yeah like it's it's his idea that art isn't for your like moral improvement or like edification right yeah if art isn't first and foremost aesthetic art as art then it's not really art if anything about it is uh, primarily uh, like to do with some sort of like social, political concern, moral concern, whatever, mm. then you're, you're just not concerned about its aesthetic merits when you're creating it. And if that's the case, then it's not good. Yeah, and so he, and he sees the critic as playing a really harmful role in mm. this trend because what does the critic do when they criticise works of art? They, they usually... They usually criticise it along very sort of rational or instrumental grounds. Um, look, I keep giving examples of like TV shows, which Nietzsche would hate because I doubt he would regard that as high art. But House of the Dragon like won the <laughs> Golden Globe, right? And I read this New York Post article saying why it didn't deserve the Golden Globe. And it never really touched on the aesthetic experience of watching the show. It actually admitted several times that it was a very powerful thing to watch, but sort of critiqued it on these bizarre lines like, oh, well, the pacing was slightly off or the music was slightly too loud relative to the dialogue, et cetera, et cetera. Sort of, and it feels very reductionist, right? It's actually just like when I watch those things, I'm not thinking that, hmm. you know? Uh, and indeed, it's the mark of good art where you're not thinking about that. But it just seemed to me to suck all the life out of the aesthetic experience, and that's what critics do for Nietzsche. Yeah, like for Nietzsche, the aesthetic experience, this 
the Dionysian experience is where you get sort of like lost in the flux of the art yeah. and you're absorbed by it and you forget, you, you get to forget rationality, right? Mm. But criticism is sort of inherently an imposition of rationality onto art, right? Because you have to kind of, per like the, the mission of a critic, you have to be able to deconstruct it or comment on it in some way. And the way you're going to do that is through rational means, like you mentioned. So, yeah, he sees critics as sort of destroying art because through the proliferation of like mass press um, education so that everybody is able to read press and follow opinion makers, the audience becomes geared towards these sort of critical ideas and through that, artists then uh, sort of pushed into creating art for the critic and for the crowd. Yeah, writing for the masses. And are we this is in the this is in part one where Nietzsche talks about how Euripides writes too much for the audience, mm. and in doing so disrespects them. Yeah. Um, but I think that's a great that's a great segue to Nietzsche's anti-egalitarianism because mm. he sees. Yeah, mass media uh, as having a sort of homogenizing effect on art and dragging everything down to the lowest common denominator, which I think was the phrase that you used yesterday, which I think is is a fascinating idea because I think there's a lot a lot to it. I mean, certainly within the confines of capitalism, there's a, a huge tendency for the commodification of art. And for that, which gets the most eyeballs on the screen, is necessarily tailored to the masses, and is just going to drag down the experience of art because most people can't appreciate high culture. Marvel uh, and Netflix movies. Yeah, exactly. Marvel and Netflix movies. Like, there's literally a formula to how Netflix TV shows are made. Um, and so Nietzsche is again like anticipating that in a certain sense and saying, well, yeah, well, this is just to be expected when art is treated as purely a form of entertainment, purely a form of gratification. Um, again, if he thought that in the 1870s, he'd be disgusted at what's going on today. But I think this is an interesting discussion because it points to his anti-egalitarianism because he thinks there has to be a hierarchy in society so that to produce this high art that he is interested in he thinks that, well, there just has to be a slave class, right, um, which was obviously true in Athens. And I think this is an interesting discussion to have because uh, I am very much attracted to the ethics of Marx's communist vision whereby everyone has the means to engage in leisure and creative pursuits and everyone can, like, engage in non-alienated labor and produce things and create things. But I think I I would have to agree with Nietzsche that there's a sort of naive optimism in that. And it's equally conceivable that if that were the case, it would just be the same as we have under capitalism, whereby art is dragged down to the lowest common denominator. And so Nietzsche really sees hierarchy as being an essential element in great artistic or aesthetic production. Yeah. Yeah, like there, there needs there need to be people who have the time and the leisure to cultivate great taste, and there need to be uh, people who have the time and the leisure to create works of great taste. Yeah, like and that that depends on there being someone to do all the labor work to support them, right? That sort of necessitates a class of people who can do this stuff, 
and a much bigger class of people who handle all the basic physical concerns to let that happen. But he, it's not just that he, he, he views like class society as being like necessary. Like he's, uh, I don't know that he's ever kind of explicitly says this, but you can kind of piece it together for what he says. Like you, you just can't have like a civilization without some sort of class hierarchy. Like being able to have a building like this that we're recording in at the University of Melbourne or being able to uh, have somewhere where you can write a symphony, someone who can sit and write a symphony and stage it in a grand theatre or something like that. You need people on top and below. Mm. And not just that, it's desirable to have that, right? He sees the egalitarian impulse and particularly socialism and communism. Like he, he doesn't really talk about it in here, but he hates socialism and communism because he sees it as being driven by resentment, right? He sees the idea that the ideas of the egalitarian impulse, um, I'm not too sure if he was familiar with Marxism per se, but the egalitarian impulses, particularly of socialism, um, to be driven by resentment of the higher from the lower. So it's it's not that, you know, if like a socialist revolution and a socialist society were to come about, it's not that it would lift everyone up. It would just cut the highest down. It would flatten. Yeah. It has a flattening, homogenizing effect. Yeah. And he has something to say about the kind of egalitarian impulse uh, impulses of this sort of like Socratic culture that kind of denies the necessity of having classes and whatnot. Um, by the way, he terms like this Socratic mindset, Alexandrian culture. Um, so here's the quote. It should be noted, Alexandrian culture needs a slave class in order to exist in the long term. But in its optimistic view of existence, it denies the necessity of such a class. And therefore, once the effect of its fine, seductive and consoling words about the dignity of man and the dignity of labor have worn off, it slowly drifts towards terrible destruction. There is nothing more terrible than a barbaric slave class that has learned to consider its existence an injustice and sets about taking its revenge, not only on its own behalf, but on behalf of all past generations. Yeah, look, I I mean, obviously I'm not in favour of slavery, but I have to admit that Nietzsche does make a very compelling critique of egalitarianism because... I, I, I just want to cut in. I think when he says slavery there, it's not he's not so much literally saying that you need like slave slaves, but he's drawing a parallel between like the sort of like intellectual elite that would sit on top of like, you know, ancient yeah, Alexandrian society mm. and sort of like the, I don't know, like the liberal bourgeois of his own time. The class that makes it possible for the higher class to have leisure and right, produce yep. art, etc. Um, which is kind of like a base superstructure argument almost, but he yeah. doesn't see anything wrong with it. <laughs> I, this is really challenging for me. It really challenges my egalitarian impulse because I have to admit there is there is a grain of truth in, in this, and it, it because it it sort of mirrors the democratic impulse in a lot of this a lot of this rationality. There's it, it, this assumption that if we just make everything more democratic, it will quote unquote be better, and I have to think about like universities, for example. Um, if everything was was done along democratic lines. I'm not completely convinced that we would still have philosophy departments because I think within the society which in, we, in which we currently live, most people have internalised this ideology of, well, everything is valuable 
instrumentally. And so if, if things were done purely on mass opinion, I, I don't necessarily think we would have philosophy departments. And look at like cultural institutions that wouldn't survive without government grants, like the theatre, opera, etc. These sort of things are not getting mass attendance. Uh, and, and if you know, we were to open up, should the government fund these things on a sort of popular referendum vote, I'm not entirely convinced that that vote would win. Uh, and, and that, to me, would be a loss. And just one final example, I think this was a discussion, I might be mistaken, but it was, it was, it was an effective altruist, right? And he was talking about sort of levelling out inequality to such a point where everyone has the same amount of money. And he had a moment of self-reflection where he goes, well, you know, I work at the University of Oxford, which is a beautiful place and it's produced so much knowledge, but it's building, it is sustained by inequality. The fact that places like Oxford exist almost depend upon there being inequality. And so he was sort of saying, well, how can I defend this egalitarian view whilst also admitting that my own life and my own work is made possible by a degree of inequality? And he kind of got out of it by saying, well, I think if we had a more equal society, places like Oxford would still exist, but maybe the lawns wouldn't be as nicely mown or something like that. Good and, luck with that, man. Yeah, I hope he was. I hope he's right, but I, I have to admit that this gives me sort of pause for reflection because at least in our current state of society, I think if people, if there was a, a more egalitarianism, more democracy in everything... I think we would just see more of a drift towards this like cultural homogeneity, this doing things for the lowest common denominator, etc. Yeah. I mean, you can think back to the history of uh, arts and high culture through the worlds where, you know, artists, poets, philosophers, um, theatres, you know, beautiful cultural buildings, traditionally they were the reserve of rich or powerful people who would patronise them, mm. right? You, the, an artist would have a patron-client relationship with some rich or powerful person because, you know, either that person is through, if we're being uh, generous through their noblesse oblige, they, they have a genuine concern for the arts and want to see it flourish. Or if we're going cynical or uh, maybe a bit more of a sort of Marxist critique of it, they, they sort of want to whitewash whitewash their own position in society and build propaganda for themselves through their patronage of the arts. But Steve this, Schwarzman. <laughs> thanks, Stevie, mate. Um, but, yeah, that, that has been the sort of traditional relationship that there is someone or some group of people who are very rich and powerful who allow high art and culture to flourish. Yeah, and, and, and while Marx would, would say, well that's just the rich creating a cultural edifice that serves their interests. Nietzsche would probably say, well, no, to us, to an extent, the aristocratic class are aristocrats because they have a stronger will. Uh, and I really think this boils down to the essential difference between the left and the right is that the, the left just sees everything as being like material. And if you even at the material playing field, there really is no difference between people. Whereas the right sort of maintains this degree of that which is immaterial, and for Nietzsche it's the will and the fact that some people just have stronger wills than others yeah. is always going to create 
a degree of inequality. Not just stronger stronger wills, but Nietzsche would hold to the idea of there being like natural hierarchies. Yeah. Not just in nature, but in people as well. Mm. So some people, uh, according to Nietzsche's line of thought, are just better, more capable, smarter, more artistic, stronger. And he views it as only right that they should be able to exceed, to rise to the top of society and to be able to do what their will compels them to do without being dragged down by sort of the uh, mundane concerns of, you know, surviving day to day. It's a very confronting argument for our modern egalitarian sympathies, but I, 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 think, it's, I think it's a good one. Yeah. Uh, I think it's something that we have to grapple with. I think it's a very good argument too. Yeah. I mean, you can have a sort of critique of it where, you know, the, the classical Marxist one where you go, well, no, you know, everybody would if we had like a truly equal society, then everybody would be able to uh, create art on a level playing field. But one, Nietzsche would contend like you can't even do that. Um, There's no such thing as a truly equal society. And on top of that, even if, let's just say, uh, theoretically, you you were able to create like a materially level society well, people are just born differently with different capabilities. You know, nature is someone who believes in natural hierarchy. So if you did have the material set up, you still wouldn't have that sort of equality of outputs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, look, there's um, th- th- there's a bit in the in the book where he's talking about how tragedy is being revived. And he starts making references to the German spirit and how German spirit is being revived and through German music. And just the way that he's talking about it made me think of this, you know, these natural hierarchies that Nietzsche is referring to in a, in a somewhat slightly <laughs> more problematic way. I think I literally had like the bit where he's talking about the German spirit rising up again. I like underlined and I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> like, <laughs> like Nietzsche was for, like foreboding in many ways. He wasn't a Nazi. That's a misreading of Nietzsche. But, mm. um, at, at the time, he did see Germans and German culture as being something that was like uniquely productive, which, you know, you can look back at what Germany was up to in the 1800s and you're like, Damn, they were really getting up to it. A lot of cultural output, a lot of intellectual output. He he loves vitality and he defines vitality as cultures and people which produce new works of art. Yeah. And so for him at the time... Not not just new works of art, but like new sort of like strivings, like extensions of the will, like great displays of people's, individual's will and a people's will, which, you know, when you talk about people's will coming from a German, that's where you get a little sketchy, but... Yeah, yeah. You, you know what I mean, though, right? I do. I do know what you mean. <laughs> it's sort of yeah, like that was the case with Germany uh, in the eighteen seventies. I also, when I was reading that section, thought of like maybe the United States at its height after World War Two, where it's this cultural powerhouse. It puts man on the moon. It's creating all these scientific discoveries. It's a hugely vital society. Yeah, and he sees the Germany of the time. Well, keep in mind this is around the time of the Romantic movement too. So. He's been hammering against the Socratic, like the rationalist impulses, the enlightenment impulses uh, of society up to that point. But the romantic culture, you know, the the movement of romanticism rejected rationality and called for a return to sort of 
a rational sort of like artistic affective forces uh, in human life and culture. And he's very much in that vein at this point. Um, he sees the kind of return of the Apollonian and Dionysian uh, in German culture at the time, particularly in German music, uh, from Bach to Beethoven. And his big one, the one who he was obsessed with pretty much the whole entirety of his life, uh, Richard Wagner. His man crush. His man crush uh, that he never got over. Uh, he sees Wagner as the one who's most most clearly returning to the spirit of Greek tragedy because he he just embodies this sort of powerful, like raw, primal, energetic impulse of the Dionysian. Uh, and he himself had like a very deep understanding of ancient Greek art and culture and all of that came together in Wagner's works. But uh, Nietzsche sees this at the time as being something that's very good, very noteworthy, and it's, it's going to lead to like a new dawn, a new Dionysian day uh, in German culture that he hoped would spread. But uh, I feel like that wraps up the end of the main body of the text. Um, Fifteen years after publishing it, Nietzsche came back to it and when did he write the that uh, new preface? I believe it was in 1886 and this was, Birth of Tragedy was written in 1871 and in 1886 he comes back to it and this is at the point where he's, he's written The Gay Science, he's written Thus Spoke Zarathustra, he's written Beyond Good and Evil, you know, many of his uh, mature works. He's He's developed his mature philosophy so he's looking back at what he wrote when he was a young man, the first thing that he put out and he's not all too impressed with what he sees there. Um, he dismisses much of it. Like he calls it, uh, quote, constructed solely from precocious, excessively personal experiences. And he calls it badly written and without proof. Um, he repudiates the sort of pessimistic impulses in it. Um, the, that whole Schopenhauerian thing of, you know, you need to be able to, subsume the will uh, and you can you know st- you know give up your uh, willing against suffering and then you'll be able to have some sort of peace and he goes no like tragedy is pessimistic but can we have a pessimism of strength and overcoming you know he, he is the nature at this point that we think of as being nature he's vital how can we overcome how can we cultivate strength in the face of all of this but not only that but he repudiates the idea of like the German spirit, German culture as a successor to the Greek one, right? Because Germany had turned toward what he calls modern ideas. So that would be things like, you know, democratic impulses, egalitarianism, rationalism. And he saw those things as fundamentally destructive of these great sort of vital artistic impulses that he so valorized here. Um, And also he disagrees with that whole notion of, metaphysical consolation right Uh, and that's part of why he repudiates romanticism in general uh romanticism doesn't seek consolation say in this world through your through overcoming uh it's a metaphysical consolation like an otherworldly consolation and many of the romantics uh wagner included turns towards christianity which nietzsche saw as a betrayal of the sort of spirit that animated them so powerfully in their uh original works but there's there's still much that he sort of admires about the text he he looks back on it and he's like 
yeah, I was wrong and I was naive about a lot of stuff, but I I like the energy. You know, he, <laughs> he looks back on it and he's like, yeah, that, that is me back there, full of piss and vinegar. It doesn't strike me as a complete, like, denunciation of his thought. It just seems like a sort of more sophisticated reinterpretation of it, mm. specifically the, the, the pessimism of strength. I mean, I take Nietzsche to be very much an imminent philosopher when he's sort of, he's trying to find meaning in this world and sort of the crisis of existentialism for me and the crisis of meaning is really sort of nonsensical and only makes sense if you come from a culture that's tried to find meaning historically in the transcendent, in the forms, in God, in reason, whatever reason is, or in capital H, history. You're always looking to find meaning and purpose in something beyond your lived experience to sort of ground how you orient yourself. And sooner or later, you're going to work out that that's just all nonsense. You can't actually do that. It's always open to critique. It's always open to be disproven. It's always just based on something that's not true, an assumption. So the sort of existentialist response to that is sort of just strikes me as like kind of missing the point. Mm. Uh, whereas Nietzsche's like, well, yeah, there is there is no meaning, there is no purpose, there is suffering, but you know, it's not beyond our human capacity to construct meaning. You know, that's up to us, and let's do it. Yeah, let's, you need to will a meaning into the world. We need to we need to create a meaning into the world. Yeah, and also he he maintains this idea that there's no no moral purpose to existence, but an aesthetic one, and he sees things that are higher, things that are great as being the highest aesthetic things. So in as much as he thinks that there is sort of like a purpose to life, it is to be great, to will, to strive, to do and create great things. He says existence is only justified as an aesthetic phenomenon, which right. I just, such a fascinating idea and a great a great quote. Yeah, when he looks back at his, uh, at the birth of tragedy and this, you know, preface 15 years later, he he still holds to that, Right. That is still his primary view of existence. It is justified aesthetically, not morally. The moral is an imposition. Mm. And I think, like, Alastair McIntyre views Nietzsche here as being the epitome of a trend in Western philosophy of individuals seeking this complete freedom where they are remove the shackles of everything and they alone create their own values and their own meaning. And Alastair McIntyre comes to reject that because he sees it as like the epitome of of, of liberalism. Um, and I am also sympathetic to that critique, but I, I think it's actually one that Nietzsche would agree with because it makes sense if you also adopt Nietzsche's anti-egalitarianism. He would say, yes, Alastair McIntyre, you're right. Most people can't do, what is it, the overman or the, the superman or... Yeah. Both translations work? The, both of them are fine. Both yeah. of them, yeah. He'd say, well, yeah, most people can't be the overman. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, by by definition, it's, they're exceptional. Yeah, they're mm. exceptional. Um, so Nietzsche's not, like, writing this for everyone. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he he is a very exclusive sort of, like, aristocratic philosopher. Like, he he, he even writes, like, not not everyone can do what I write about. Not not everyone can be that person. You know, I write for the exceptional few, um, not not for the many, because they just can't be this. Yeah. 
And so I just thought, like, I wonder what then Nietzsche's politics would actually look like, which is why we brought up Burke's idea of the noble lie. Like, would he still want to have, for most people, for the masses, a society constructed around some sort of transcendent meaning? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Like, I, most people have to have a slave morality, but, like... No, I wouldn't say they have to have a slave morality. Like, remember back to when we did On the Genealogy of Morals, where he talks about the sort of, like, the transvaluation of values, you know, the shift in moral and um, ethical judgments from the sort of Bronze Age Greeks where there's the there's the good and the bad, and that's defines in terms of, like, strength and, like, aesthetics. The people who are strong, who are powerful, who are beautiful... They're the good, and the the weak, the ugly, the rabble. They're the bad, uh, and then that gets turned into the dichotomy of good and evil, where it's it's flipped, right? Uh, all those all those old impulses, all those old characteristics that were the um, the domain of the the good before the the higher, they get viewed as the new vices, right? Pride. Greed, wrath, uh, all of that, lust, all of those things get denied. Um, but Nietzsche views those things as you know a fundamental part of the human spirits and, and the human experience. So I'd say that he'd he'd call he would recognize the importance of like a myth, some some noble yeah like let's use the phrase noble lie to unify a people in a culture. But he's he's hopeful. And he's hopeful of the idea that there can be one that returns to the spirits of the Bronze Age, Bronze Age Greeks, where there's a valorization of the higher impulses rather than a demonization of them. Yeah, well, that's, that's fascinating. How, how, when and where that can happen uh, remains to be seen. I think it's interesting reading this text from Australia and for our non-Australian listeners who there is a surprising number of, actually, it's quite G'day. nice to see. G'day, everyone. We have this thing called the tall poppy syndrome where, like, people who are exceptional in their field are sometimes kind of ridiculed and, like, torn down. And I imagine Nietzsche would hate that. Yeah, 100%. Because, and it's, I'm in two minds about it because on the one hand I see it as being anti-intellectual, but on the other hand I see it as also being a manifestation of Australia's kind of latent egalitarianism which still kind of exists and has sort of saved us from, like, the worst excesses of maybe neoliberalism that you find in, like, America or even the UK. But I think, yeah, you can subject that sort of cultural tendency to a Nietzschean critique. Yeah, he would, he would see it as being fueled by resentment. It's not so much that, uh, you, you know, what the, how an Australian would sort of, like, characterise the, the concern behind what, what someone would, you know, deride as being tall poppy syndrome. They go... No, 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 everyone's equal, you know, no, really, like no one's better than anyone else. Um, but Nietzsche would go, no, there are people who are just better. Mm. And uh, things like tall poppy syndrome and are an attempt driven by resentment to cut them down. You're trying to minimise their achievements. You're trying to stop them from being and from achieving the greatness that they're capable of. Yeah, absolutely. All of this is to just say that I'm quite conflicted and I can see <laughs> I can see Nietzsche's critique, but I also see the benefit in egalitarianism. So I don't know. I don't know where this ship is going to land. Yeah. I mean, I, I mentioned this on a prior pod, but when I was in university, I had a, 
lecturer for an intensive subject on Nietzsche, uh, who characterized the existentialists in the 20th century as a, a left, an attempt of reconciling Nietzsche with left-wing politics. Interesting. But I'll, I'll be honest, I think um, Nietzsche just on his own does a better job of characterizing the concerns of existentialism. Yeah, and there's also a lot of people who try to synthesize Marx and Nietzsche. And now having read this, I am very like intrigued to read those projects because I, I can't, personally I can't really quite see how the, how you would do that. Yeah, I, I remember uh, Jonas Chaker, the guy behind the YouTube channel Cuck Philosophy, yeah. he released a book um, where he's trying to synthesize Marx and Nietzsche. But I, yeah, I... I I, you, weren't, I, you weren't hugely convinced? I, I was not at all convinced. I don't think you did a convincing job whatsoever. Oh, sorry, dude. Uh, <laughs> I love your channel, by the way. Uh, I have the book, so I should read it. I mean, look, I got a signed copy. I'm, I'm not hating on the guy. I think he makes great content, but just... Weren't convinced by his philosophical project. Yeah, I wrote a bad Goodreads review, and he still liked it, so thank <laughs> you for that. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, on that note, folks, um, we will leave you be. Thank you for listening to the second part of the episode. Thanks, gang. Please um, like, subscribe, rate, rate, and get in touch. Tell us, give us your your feedback, your comments, uh, any recommendations. We'll get onto them. We really would like feedback because we, you know, we we want to grow the podcast and we want the podcast to increase in its visibility. So please um, don't feel that you only have to reach out and say really nice, lovely things. If you have constructive criticism, I'll also be happy to to hear that. Please. All right. Thanks, guys. Ladies and gang.